2: That is so crazy. A friend of mine was asking me that today. <laughs> she, she she said, um, um, "Do you know why they call you Lala?" And I have absolutely no idea. <laughs> that, that was one of the things I was wondering myself. But uh, you know, when you do these roles, they get these characters' names, and sometimes they give you backdrops. Sometimes they don't and uh, you just go with it. Uh, I was just happy to have a, a name that kind of stuck out because, you know, Lala. I mean, how many people do you know? How many guys do you know named Lala?
1: Hello, everyone. I'm Dave. And I'm Kobe. And you're listening to The Wire Stripped. It's the show where every week we re-watch HBO's The Wire.
3: And we hear from the cast and crew and fans, and we also hear from you guys as well.
1: Today, we're going to watch Season 2, Episode 7. It's called Backwash.
3: Yeah, guys, and if you want to get in touch with us and talk about anything about The Wire, please do find us on social media. We are at The Wire Stripped on Facebook, Twitter,
1: and Instagram. And here's our chat, which we recorded, as always, on the hard streets of London.
4: He got the fire and the fury At his command Well, you don't have to worry When you hold on to Jesus' hand, we'll all be safe from Satan. When the thunder rolls, you got to keep the devil wet
0: down in the hole.
1: Right, so here we are outside uh, the offsite. Yeah. Yeah. We're looking. Yes, we're, looking
3: the, at the, we're looking at the building where the detail is set up. We're not allowed inside yet because we're not. Uh, we've been authorized. Be, no,
1: we've not been authorized. No, we're the we're the McNulties of the crew. Yeah, Rawls does not want us in there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're talking about season two, episode seven of The Wire. It's called Backwash. Yeah, yeah. So That's what happens? A lot of a um, lot of some nautical titles to these episodes. There are. It? Yeah. There's,
3: um, well. we'll ebb flow was one of the ebb tide was an earlier one wasn't it
1: yeah
3: uh, i can't think of anything else
1: the, the sound you're hearing head. is us frantically flipping through pages <laughs> storm mornings yep. is coming up yeah duck and cover that's not one
3: well it's it's, it's got a duck in there <laughs> that's a nautical animal
1: <laughs> very true very a- true aquatic based they animal. do like water
3: um so yeah dave what happens in uh,
1: backwash well backwash there's a there's a a few storylines in this. Um, we're going to save the the sort of fallout of D'Angelo's death till the end. Sure. Uh, but we're going to pick up with the sabotka detail, first of all. Um, so, we meet Rawls. He's trying to get Daniels to take the homicides, but Daniel's like, no, I'm not taking these homicides. We're mm. seven episodes in. Yeah. People still trying to shift these homicides <laughs> around. The Jane Doe's. Daniel stays stays firm. He's, he, and, he's, and he's been fighting with his wife and he's told his wife, no, I'm going to play their game, I'm going to get my, my Sabatka case done, I'm going to get this unit, uh, I'm going to be a career guy, don't worry. Mm. But, as we, <laughs> as we all know, that doesn't work out, because Bunk, Freeman and BD go to him and they say, that we have to take the murders, We've got to. it all ties in, we've got to take this, we've got to close the case. So is that their
3: conscience overriding everything?
1: I don't know, I thought that, yeah, it's a good question, I think the motivation is a little unclear here. Mm. I think... I'm not sure why they were so insistent on taking the murders. I think it's that maybe, A, they needed Blunk, uh and BD. Yeah. Uh, B, they probably needed the added um, resource. We see we see them going to J to ask for the, com- the computer setup and all that. Sure. Um, and I think probably uh, uh, the uh, homicides of that, you know, of that nature, you know, 13 Jane Doe's, is going to bring with it a lot of... Um, currency that yeah. they probably need internally but all of that is me speculating so I don't true know. I mean
3: well um Lester Freeman has you have the the sense that Lester Freeman has the big picture in mind At every single step of the way he thinks 20 steps ahead of anyone else I think I think he's got his ideal picture of how how the detail will be and he's kind of shaping it from the start from my point of view so I think accepting the Jane Durst and being able to close that kind of case I think he's a big uh, step in the way he wants to go
1: that's a good point I think you're right and I think he can see he can connect those dots yeah. that nobody else is connecting and I think he can see that they can bring bring in the Jane Doe's along with all this so why don't they claim it yeah. and I think that that is kind of their pitch to
3: your
2: Why to don't we? Deals, isn't it this case needs to be worked Lieutenant I know it began for you as a bullshit detail but this sabot goes into some shit that needs to be worked by good police the DNR's the clone computer we got the pattern the Rawls came to me. I asked if I would take the homicides. You should. Those girls in the can really suffocated, Lieutenant. They really died in that fucking box. You pick this case up. You might eat those open murders. But you let it pass. You gotta ask yourself how you want to live your day to day.
1: So yeah, know, He goes to Rawls and he says. <laughs> Yeah, I'll take I'll take the Jane Doe's uh rolls happily offloads them. Um and now we kind of Rawls is a little bit in Daniel's pocket.
3: Yes, and that's the main thing is that I take I'll take the bodies, but anything I want, I get, and that's important to note that. Yes. Anything I
1: want, I get. Because that's going to be important yeah. for anyone who's not uh <laughs> who's not uh, watching along for the first for the second time. Um but obviously Daniel's wife is not happy about this. No. Um, and I think we're seeing the seed of discontent here. There's a couple
3: of times in this episode where he's sitting down to and explaining why he's doing this and why he's still there and why he's not being a lawyer. And this is the seeds. This we first saw in season one, where we first kind of thought uh, Daniels was just kind of a jobbing uh, lieutenant on a career path. But you can see he's actually loving this, and he wants. He is like, I don't want to be a lawyer. I, this is what I want to do. This is this is me through and through, and to the detriment of um, you know what they had planned together with him and Marla it's
1: true and it's nice to see Daniels' his passion come out because we didn't see that till the end of the first season yeah. really and that's when he's at its best <laughs> um, he'd be wasted as a lawyer
3: yeah we don't want him as a lawyer
1: no we also see Kim and Prez they're following up on the info from Shardine from the last episode and they find a, a whorehouse Prez scouts the area uh, and Kima teases him a- about Prez it. Prez is unhappy.
3: He's not He's not in his element at all, is he?
1: No, Prez is not Prez's <laughs> natural hunting ground. He's not into it. Uh, but, of course, McNulty's not in the details. So yeah. what are you, you going to do? Um, now, I really liked this this sort of subplot with Herc and Carver Brilliant. By, buying the surveillance book. Brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> How
3: good is this? First of all, what kind of shop is this? Is this like a police shop or like a a Private eye shop, that what what where does yeah, this exist?
1: Question. I kind of, I kind of, it was like almost like um, like the paw, pawn stores. What yeah. one of those kind of shows? <laughs> yeah, it was like one of the storage wars kind of shows.
4: <laughs>
1: <laughs> you, you'd expect them to show up in one of those episodes, like, yeah, oh, yeah.
4: yeah. You don't
0: know what you're gonna
4: encounter. We need a bug, something that can stand up to the pressures of the modern urban
3: crime environment. And
1: yeah, it's total, total, like weird, like. Uh, but it's, it's, it's America. There's a lot of weird shops. Well, this like is that
3: it. I'm, I'm used to the concept of a, <laughs> I'm Used to the concept. I'm used to the concept of a, a gun shop. But this wasn't that, was it? It was like it was like a, a, a related industry shop. So you can imagine that you go out, turn left, the next the next <laughs> shop is the, is a gun shop. But this is where you go to get your surveillance kit, where you're hunting down your you know your lover that's made you a cuckold.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you see the guns, you've gone too far. Yeah, <laughs> I feel like that guy probably had guns in the back. there. Oh yeah, probably. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, so they they um, does a very hilarious exchange with the shop owner where he needs he needs a a credit card. It's twelve hundred and fifty dollars, mm. which is a lot. Of course, Herc's card is maxed out. <laughs> I love that little detail. That makes complete sense. So Carver Carver swallows the feed, and then they um, mm. they put their sort of illegitimate surveillance tap. Uh, to work inside a tennis ball, which I kinda like this. It's kind of like this. It's kind of a little ingenious little ploy by then. It is,
3: yeah. And it was, it was a great point later on where they've got it working and Herc just taps Carver on the shoulder and says, dude, don't you just love technology? It's great. <laughs> and they both like, kind of go, yeah. <laughs> I
1: thought that was so on the nose.
3: Hey, Carl, is is technology to fucking bomb. Huh? And then what happens?
1: Uh, well, so we see Frog and Nick having a conversation. Yeah. Uh, and then Frog sees the tennis ball and starts playing with it, which uh, you know you might you might do. Uh, and I, I mean, then he throws it down the street, and then you get this sort of great cat and mouse chase between Carver and the tennis ball. And I think fair play to to Seth Gilliam here because the the look on his face—I've never seen anyone in the show look more distressed, more more panicked, more more horrified. It was a. Absolutely beautiful. As the
3: tennis ball gets run over by the truck. Yeah. Brilliant. His face. And then like Herc, you can see Herc just tapping tapping his headphones. Hello? (laughs) (laughs) Is
0: anyone there? When they, you know, when you see them, uh, you know, uh, run over the ball.
3: This is Rain, who played Frog in season two of The Wire.
0: Man, they filmed that so many times. So there's a guy um, who's, you know if you if you could kind of picture you know the front of the the Mack truck coming toward the tennis ball and then there's like essentially a um a a lane of road there and then there's like a little you know area for for cars to um to park so that there was a person standing right there and as the truck pulled by he had to roll the ball across the street and you know have this truck hit it and he's going at full speed they didn't speed that up at all you know that's that's actually how it happened and uh just to see the way that they filmed it i learned so much about filming watching them do that scene uh, it was it was so fun
1: meanwhile back at um back in the, in the offsite at the offsite where we're we looking at now it's it's so pretty out here. I wish I wish you could all see it. If only podcasting was a visual medium. Uh, so we have got Freeman and BD there. Um, they're still watching the computers. They got which job would you prefer? Would you prefer to be up uh, up with a camera and surveillance gear and a, and a tennis ball, listening to the hand to hands, or back on the computer?
3: I think I'd be a computer guy because yeah. I'd be able to put my headphones on, watch some podca- listen to some podcasts, <laughs> and <laughs> then and then just wait for the little. 1970s type graphics to took along the screen and like drop a, drop, a, drop a canister. That'd be so tedious.
1: Yeah, but I don't think they had podcasts in 2002, Kobe. Did they?
3: Not on, not on your iPhone. They didn't have iPhones then. But uh, there'd
1: be something like was, Win Winamp. He was streaming it on a Internet Explorer. Yeah. That's what he's
2: doing.
5: The elevator music can only mean one thing. Interestingly, the maximum occupancy of this lift is one person and one fact. And that fact is that in 1993, in the early days of internet radio, Carl Malamud launched Internet Talk Radio, which was the first computer radio talk show. Then in September 2000, the first system that enabled the selection, automatic downloading, and storage of serial episodic audio content on PCs and portable devices was launched. In November 2003, the company Audio Feast filed a patent application for method for providing episodic media with the USPTQ. And then writing for The Guardian in February 2004, journalist Ben Hammersley suggested the term podcasting as a name for the nascent technology. So there you go, podcasts originated in 2004.
1: So I like this little moment where Freeman explains why he's watching the clean containers. He's yeah. watching all of them. And this is just classic Freeman. He's soaking up the detail. Mm. Every single container that, that goes by, he's watching it so he knows and understands the process yeah. so that when anything's different, he'll spot it instantly. Um, and then something does happen. They spot horseface losing a container. Mm-hmm. And I really liked all this because you see and prayers, tracking it in in real life. Uh, we've got um, Freeman and BD back in back in the offsite with the computers, yep. and tipping them off. They're all talking to each other, so it's a, like suddenly all the the dots are connecting, yeah. and you can see how robust their case is becoming.
3: Oh yeah, this is also part of that trail. Is uh, catching they see Prop Joe together as part of the um, because Prop Joe comes part of the story.
1: Yeah, it's like a little cameo, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. So they track the container to the to Double G's warehouse. Yeah, uh, we see Sergei meeting Prop Joe. Yeah, and he gets snapped. Yeah, and he's
3: on their board. Yeah, Prop and this, Joe. This is where it starts to click in why season two is a thing because this is where this is part of where get, they're getting the drugs from, which links it to season one, which then links it to season three, which then links it to the whole of the wire, and. This is one of the things I probably missed the first time watching it, was understanding why we're seeing the doc side of things. But as we further develop the next few episodes, we see a lot more of where the drugs come from then lead into into the rest of it. So we, it's, it's super important, this part of it.
6: Prop Joe, though, is a great character. And, and I, love, I love the way that season two opens up. The different crews, the different politics of all of the different groups.
3: This is podcaster Dave Pickering of the Family Tree podcast and Getting Better Acquainted.
6: In season one, you were very much kind of following one kind of setup and some other people around that who had different affiliations, maybe. But in in, in season two, you start to get an idea of of what the landscape is when the Barks Barksdale crew isn't controlling. Yeah. It. And uh, it's interesting to see the kind of political realignments. I mean, that's, again, like every time those political realignments are happening, when you're meeting Prop Joe, all of that stuff, when there's kind of like people are betraying each other and there's all of that cool stuff happening, I'm loving. And then we go back to the, to the you know, back to the shores. And I'm like, oh God, you know, so I want to get back to that. I want to get back to that political manoeuvres.
3: Okay, so the next storyline is, um, I guess it ties in with what's going on in the Spock detail because... They got, there's two sides. We're seeing two sides at the same time. We see Nick with Frog, um, and he is papped by Herc and Carver. The flip side of that is Herc and Carver get their um, surveillance microphone destroyed. Yeah. Um, so but now at least
1: they've got Nick on their board. Yeah, that's
3: it. So now Nick's part of the detail, next part of the case. Now, <laughs> Maui. Um, you see, we go into Dolores' pub and Dolores' bar, and we see a dejected Ziggy which doesn't mean anything really, but you see he's got sheets... He's got no, sheets, it's a Tuesday. Sheets. Yes, exactly. <laughs> a day ending in a Y. And he's got sheets and sheets of paper, and he's dejected. He's like, fuck it, Nick, I'm, I'm a dad. I've just been served these papers. You can see all the guys in the... All the stevedores are having a laugh. Not necessarily at his expense, but he's not part of the joke. And Nick quickly kind of twigs, doesn't he, that something's not quite right with this, because these papers say that he's a dad to a woman that everyone on the docks has had a bit of fun with so how can they prove it Nick grabs a phone rings the number that's on the letters and it, and it directs to Maui hey Dolores
0: I use the bar phone the fuck you calling
3: the lawyer on
4: this fucking piece of bullshit
0: what you know fucking law firm over in the middle of the
4: goddamn
5: night
3: Mario answers shyster, shyster and shyster.
0: Shyster, shyster shyster.
3: <laughs> <laughs> it's and a no, nice touch. It is. Pan- yeah. Fantastic. And it just turned into a laughing match and everyone's everyone's laughing at Ziggy's expense again.
1: And they were playing a lot of relevant songs on the jukebox. Yeah. Which I kind of liked. So it's it's a classic sort of a, a lad's banter uh, joke, at, but again at the expense of, of Ziggy. Ziggy. Yeah. Um, and I think this also highlights why... You know, the difference between Ziggy and Nick and the, you know, how quickly they cottoned on to, to what was happening. Yeah.
3: And this is where the stevedores kind of start playing into Ziggy's mind and saying, dude, you can, what Maui did to you was not cool. You could take him. You should fucking cold cock him. When he's not looking, hit him. <laughs> and he starts to, like, if you don't know Maui, if you can't picture Maui, Maui is like three foot taller, than three feet taller than Ziggy. Yeah. Ziggy's a skinny, wiry guy. Ziggy and um, Maui looks like he was born on the docks to lift the crates like heavy he doesn't need a forklift truck. He can, <laughs> he can lift these himself. <laughs> the fact that Ziggy is thinking, yeah, I can have him is just like who who do you think How you are? gullible dude? is Ziggy. Yeah. <laughs>
1: because sometimes Ziggy displays like dazzling intelligence. Uh, but he's not street smart, I no. guess, or he's not clever. I think that's that's the key difference.
2: I mean, again, this whole, this whole extension of Maui just continually to to <laughs> to fuck with Ziggy. Here
3: is Calvin Davis, better known as Lala. Uh,
2: so he so he was so oblivious to to anything that was going on, and uh, he, he was just an easy target, such an easy target for a joke. And uh, so we we were all sitting in the corner, uh, sitting at the table. And obviously, with paying, playing the song over and over again, he still hasn't gotten the gotten message. So it took Nick to come in and really, you know, sit up, wait a minute, hold on a second, what's going on? Hey, when did you get this, these papers? You know, things weren't just adding up. So, and just to see his reaction, it just kind of dug us into, into his claw just a little bit deeper. Everybody was just taking them as a joke. we see
3: Frank and a few of the guys um, at a seminar about robots technologies on the dock um, this obviously puts the shit up them because they're just thinking well if these robots can do all this work who's going to man it where are all the jobs going to go and the jobs are going to go to these robots They're going their jobs are just going to go and they are obviously like properly dejected by it Um, I really
1: loved this PowerPoint presentation. (laughs) (laughs) It It was like an infomercial from the 90s. Yeah. It was dazzling. To
4: bring goods to an exploding global economy and to deliver those goods faster, cheaper, and safer, modern robotics do much of the work in the world's largest seaport, Rotterdam. Moving cargo is a traditional strength of the Dutch, who shuttle more freight in fewer man hours than any port in the world and now the dutch have modeled the future of cargo
3: men finally in the docks yeah a dock worker a new child is uh, crushed uh, when a container lands on his leg um, his legs crushed and he's taken to hospital but actually loses the leg it's that's actually it's a dark scene that
1: it shows the well it, it's it, it's a very um, Deliberate juxtaposition with the the robots stuff yeah. because okay, yeah. their key point was safety. Yeah, you know, there's uh, less less people at risk, no injury, machines do the job. Yeah, and then that happens. So then you kind you can kind of see both sides. Um, but yeah, it was it was it was quite gruesome, and it shows when things go wrong, they go very wrong. Yeah,
3: you know? and as as people kind of warming to Frank's way of thinking, or at least him as a character, you want the best for the people there. Even if what they're doing is slightly shady, so to see at every opportunity, their careers or their life is kind of ebbing away. It's kind of it's kind of distressing. And then they go and visit New Charles's family. Frank gives his wife or or his partner a load of money, and Nat's Nat kind of looks at him and goes, "Dude, where's where's the money from?" Yeah, he doesn't know. Nat doesn't know the other side of things.
1: Frank is as. Careless with giving cash out in public, <laughs> as his son is <laughs> and his nephew. Everyone's just walking around with these giant wads of energy. What the fuck are they doing? <laughs> yeah, the yeah. amount
3: of times, yeah, Nick just sits next to him and goes, "Yeah, here's three thousand dollars. Don't spend it."
1: They're just sitting at yeah. the bar. They're not even like at, at a table towards the back of the bar, yeah. like shrouded in shadow or anything. Yeah, they're Nick, right up there next right, to Dolores Sigi,
3: come and meet me in the morning. I've got something for you. <laughs> Keep it to yourself. But yeah, so Nat's, Nat is at the other side of the union he's he's him and his boys are trying to look to take over Frank's position next year and but they're a bit behind the curve they don't understand what's going on they don't understand um Sabotka's big game
1: um, but as far as I understand it there's there's some sort of deal between them where they sort of swap back to, and forth yeah it's that's like what it sounds a white like and then a black man yeah. I think as far as I know so the, la- the yeah. so the other storyline is it's the fallout of D'Angelo's uh, alleged Suicide. Yeah. they all think it's a suicide. So the the cold open of this episode is uh, is interesting. I thought it's Bodie at a uh, a florist, I guess, yeah, buying a floral arrangement for the funeral, which is interesting because they own a funeral home. That's true, actually. <laughs> <So> <laughs> <did> they <laughs> are they a partner of a Stringer Bell and Family uh, Funeral Home, or?
3: Well, I think they must be affiliated, surely. Yeah, surely preferential rates. Yeah, they've
1: got. <laughs> Got mates rates on the flowers. <laughs> Maybe they pay in heroin. <laughs> yeah, you can only assume. So Bodhi's um sort of asking the guy what what should what should I get? They kinda settle on um Bodhi thinks it would be appropriate to get a floral arrangement of the towers. Mm-hmm. And this made me so sad because even in death D'Angelo can't escape the towers yeah. and and his life. He spent he spent the last remaining Moments of his life. Finally free. He'd he'd cut off all ties with with his uncle, with the family. He was finding his own way, finally. And then it was all tragically taken from him. And then all he's going to be remembered for is this. It's his legacy. It's literally going to be over his grave. And it made me so,
3: (laughs) so sad. I Yeah, this is... One thing I'd like to point out as we go into the funeral as well. I'm not sure we see... Any funerals and the rest of it, and the rest of the why. But this is obviously how important his death was. Wallace died in season one. We don't see the aftermath of that. He perhaps doesn't have the people there supporting him. But D'Angelo is obviously is a Barksdale. He's one of the Barksdale crew. Is even if he's not seen as uh, high up as Stringer or Avon, or even some like WeeBay, it's a big, it's a big loss to to their family and to to the whole crew. So for them to have a funeral and to be well attended and shown on, on the screen is like, I think it's a really poignant thing actually.
6: As is always the case with The Wire is the death moments of your favourite characters and so when D'Angelo uh, died uh, it was very disappointing and sad to me. In fact, I think because that happens in like episode three or four, right? I think I was just getting over the fact that we were spending all this time with these on, on the docks uh, and and then I was like, and now you've killed D'Angelo. And it was like, because like Wallace in the first season, it was as emotionally like punching as that, but it was early on, whereas Wallace was, you know, near the end. Um, And so it was, you know, and and it was like every time one of your favourite characters goes on the wire, you're like, Will, you know, they're gone from your life you know and you're like will they ever come back and you're like will the will I be able to enjoy the wire now they're gone and the answer is always yes you will because there will be equally interesting characters later on or uh, qu- as quite often happens a character you didn't realize was interesting you will then realize that they're much more interesting as the seasons go on but yeah when D-Wen it was sad and I didn't think it, I I didn't think it was going to happen I thought it was going to happen in season 1 and he didn't die then. So I thought I was safe. And he's in prison as well, so you're like, oh, he's safe in prison. But he wasn't.
4: <laughs> I think the I think D'Angelo's funeral scene reminds me a lot of the work in The Godfather, to be honest with you.
3: Here's film journalist Mark Serby talking about season two of The Wire.
4: I think there is a lot of similarities going on in terms of that, how... There are, like in The Godfather, you have a lot of families come in. Um, You know, so you have these big, expansive families all come in and all shake hands with people. And I think we see that with D'Angelo's funeral, is that he was probably the one person who brought in all of these different types of people. Everybody knew him, whether it was they knew him to talk to every single day, like Poot, or if they just saw him occasionally, something like that. Um, So he was... He was, to a certain degree, the centre of the entire Wire universe for quite a while, and we've got to remember that. Obviously, you know, he was the key, pivotal guy in the first series in terms of setting a lot of things up, and and obviously, you know, the the wonderful couch as well. I mean, I think that his death scene kind of took a lot of people by surprise because people were, were like, "Well, how can you kill off this character?" Okay, we've seen you kill off characters before, but this guy looked like he was going places. It looked like he was breaking free. And I think that's the beauty of something like that, is that
3: it keeps you on edge.
1: It was a huge turnout. Even Prop Joe was there. Yeah, with well, um, a
3: proposition, which I thought was a bit inappropriate.
1: <laughs> yes, always doing business. But um, So I guess, uh, so. as a reminder for everybody, what happens is Prop Joe and Stringer Bell, after the funeral, they mm. start discussing business. Uh, proposition Joe offers him connect to the supplier with a, you know, a sort of a 50-50 cut kind of kind of deal. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting. It's interesting to see the two of them together because they're very like-minded. Mm. They're all about uh, pennies to dollars. Yeah, yeah, And the bottom line. And it's very, they're very different to Avon yeah. in how they do business. Because he's, he's all about hearts. family, heart, yeah. loyalty, passion. So these two feel like they can work very well together. Yeah if only they were allowed to their own devices.
3: We should obviously kind of, going back to the funeral side of things and D'Angelo's death, we see uh, Dee's mum obviously is absolutely distraught. We see her string a bell goes to the flat, to, to the wake. Um, oh, it's, it's a pre-wake. It's before the before the funeral. And, I think so, yeah. Yeah, and she, he's just trying to console her, which I don't, I'm not sure how much he's trying to console her or just be seen to be consoling her. You watch that
4: Funeral scene, and you see that the interactions between everybody. No, there's no real crying as such. There's a lot of solemn people. There's a lot of heads bowed, but nobody's really crying. And I do wonder how much this really affected people. You know, we know that it affected his mum, but at the same time, did it really affect him? I, I, I did. Sorry, did it really affect her? I don't know. This is the question. She didn't really seem overly concerned about it you you obviously see a lot of uh mothers who have to bury their children and, and you know they don't get over these things it feels like she got over it very quickly in this show because she was clearly seeing the bigger picture with stringer and with avon and that's quite heartbreaking to watch i have to say that to see somebody who was the mother and yet wasn't really the mother i guess um difficult to watch i think for that regard but the funeral is very interesting because obviously as i said it brings in a lot of people and a lot of people talking um not about d'angelo that's the weird thing about it there's there's some wonderful moments where they're talking about him but the rest of it is very much business as usual even walking into the cars afterwards you know with stringer and, and with prop joe that's they're talking about business deals it's kind of gone He's he's gone. It's not, you know, he's
3: not even in the ground, and already he's
4: gone.
1: How much how much remorse do you think Stringer Bell has?
3: It's a route he'd rather not have gone down, I think. But when push comes to shove, it was a no brainer for him. So he's just like, well, that's I, I had to do it. So he's reconciled it in his own mind.
1: Exactly, I yeah. agree. I think it was a, it was a business decision. For <laughs> yeah, he's not he's not regretful. He's not remorseful. He's regretful. Yeah, he's regretful that it had to turn out like this. Yeah. but he doesn't. Uh, Feel any remorse about what he's done? No. Yeah.
6: Stringer Bell in season two, you see more dimensions to his character. You'd he'd already been set up as a quite multi-dimensional character in season one, but you do see sort of levels of betrayal or ruthlessness uh, that you haven't seen in advance. He, He, you know, in season one, he keeps his hands very clean where he can. Um I, I he still does that to a certain extent, but he he is prepared to get them dirty and that's what we see when he kills d'angelo uh, well orders D'Angelo to be killed because his hands are still relatively clean um it didn't make me like him more as a character, definitely. But I do understand his logic, like he, he is a man who is always thinking about like weighing up pros and cons, what's best for, for him and for, you know, but still his logic is based around kind of understandable decisions within the systems that are around him.
3: Hello, this is Alex Lawson, a journalist and
4: podcaster with the Rabonas and Rhythms podcast. Love the show guys, keep up the good work. My favourite character from season two is Brother Muzone the surprise package hitman who arrives from New York and shakes things up and and exacerbates the tensions between the east and the west side of Baltimore. Uh, He's a hired enforcer who wears a bow tie and a suit and I just love his aloof attitude, the fact he sits there reading The Economist and Harper's and looking down on the rest of the uh, drug trafficking trade. His relationship with his... Well Slave Lamar is brilliant. So yeah, Brother Muzone, snooty, compelling and dangerous to view.
3: Thank you very much there Alex Lawson for your burner message talking about his favorite character in season 2, Brother Muzone. Dave, how can they leave a burner message?
1: Well, Kobe, you do it by going into WhatsApp and then you do the voice thing and then you send it to +44 7534 831658.
3: And if that's a bit of a pain, you can just record your voice on your favorite voice memo app on your phone and send it to us to burner at thewirestrip.com and we'll get your burner message that way.
1: This week, we still want to know, what's your favorite moment from season two? Any moment at all, what's the one that sticks in your memory? Let us know. One point in the scene with uh, Nick and Frog, I Mm. noticed that Frog was wearing a Spider-Man t-shirt. Right, And I only bring this up because in season one, I kind of thought that Avon was wearing an Iron Man t-shirt. I remember you saying this. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't know.
3: <laughs> how, I can't remember. I don't remember how season three plays out. I don't know if Thor comes into
1: <laughs> yeah. any, anyone's uh,
3: wardrobe. or
1: By by season five, the Avengers have assembled on yeah, someone's exactly. t-shirt. How good would it be if the Wire universe and Avengers universe existed in the same oh, be place? Absolutely yeah. magnificent. Love it. So, the, what, so where would that place place this? It was well before... It'll be Iron well Man.
3: before. Well, it'll be obviously um, you've got Tony Stark's dad who's around and doing stuff. Yeah. Um, we're going to see Captain Marvel, which predates all of what we see in, in the Avengers canon. And obviously, um, the first Avenger was set during World War II and then kind of so it's in there we can we can okay. we can afford some bullshit
1: challenge challenge to our listeners also create uh, a timeline of, of the wire and Avengers and also the over.
3: first Ant-Man Scott Pym
1: oh and yes Pym. that's he, very much this period yeah yeah.
3: so he could be he could be doing Ant stuff he's probably on string of shoulder
1: Ant, Ant stuff <laughs> <laughs> do you think he's on his shoulder whispering yeah. in his ear yeah exactly like a sell more drugs <laughs> <laughs> um I thought it was interesting. This is a really interesting scene uh, where Avon and uh, Weebe are in prison, obviously, because that's where they live now. Yeah, eating a um, chicken. Eat, yeah, eating chicken. It was KFC, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, it was KFC. Yeah, then, yeah. Um, and they were talking about the fallout of D'Angelo's death and Avon Avon was angry. I thought it was an interesting reaction to
3: yeah. it. Yeah. He just sees it as he's just copped out. He's just said, right, that, that's it. I'm not going to do my time.
1: Yeah. I'm out of this life. Avon really saw it as a betrayal mm. um, and a very in a personal hit. And I think it shows a little bit what of kind. Avon is a little bit of a narcissist in a way. I think he's a narcissist he's, or he
3: just feels that, that close to his family. I
1: don't know. Potentially. I don't know. I think. Th- well, he made it about him. Yeah. He said that D'Angelo did this to spite me. Right. You know, he did this as an attack on me. That's Which is
3: an interesting horrific. way <laughs> to treat suicide.
6: He knew when he hung himself how we was going to carry it. He knew when he did that that we was going to be in a moment like this
3: right now. He knew that. nigga did that shit to hurt me, man. What, he thinks to be suicide, yeah. Yeah. Oh, he killed himself to yeah, get at me. But Which, I'll get the last laugh he's thinking. Or I do think,
1: <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I think it shows, it shows well, it's a... A real lack of perspective, mm. uh, which we see in Avon, and I think we see a lot of that. I think his his uh, and his judgment often gets shrouded by his emotions. And yeah, I think that's that's happening here as well.
3: Then um, we've been able to call Dianzo weak, um, which is pff, obviously not not what happens. Um,
1: no, if anything, it's the opposite. Yeah. If anything, he's actually shown tremendous strength through this whole season. That's why his death is such a tragedy. Mm. It really hit he's me. Trying to forge his own time. path.
3: Yeah. So again, one of my favourite lines of the of the episode comes from Herc and Carver. Their banter between themselves. So previously we had, uh, "Hi, I'm Thomas," and uh, from from Herc trying to pull Beady Russell, <laughs> yeah, unconvincingly and hilariously. <laughs> and in that in that uh, private Investigator shop, wherever it's called, or whatever type of shop it is, Carver calls Herc out, saying that the His name's name is Herc. head, dick head. <laughs> and that just <laughs> that just had me in
1: stitches. You like that?
3: I, I, I'm such a simple guy. Sometimes I do like smart comedy, but sometimes just something silly, just check, like, playground banter like that, just has me in stitches.
1: They're very good, these two. Yeah, because the actors live together in in real life did, to try yeah. and uh, to get that, that get buddy the chemistry going. Absolutely. Yeah, and I think it really worked. <laughs> really, it paid off. I I would like to introduce a new a new feature to our show. Covey, which is the alternative epigraph. So the epigraph is the opening quote uh, at the beginning of every episode, and I'd like us to each episode select a quote which would be even better (laughs) than the epigraph. The epigraph to put in, and I humbly submit to you my my suggestion for this episode, and it's from Bunk. Right. And the quote is, "I'm just a humble motherfucker with a big ass dick."
0: <laughs> I think this might be one of my favorite bunk lines of all time. <laughs> God,
3: I gotta love the bunk. Absolutely love the bunk. I think the only thing else, a couple of things I want to say um, are relating to Beardy Russell. I just love her. I think she's great. And the way, like in earlier episodes, where she just piles in straight away with, with Freeman and, and uh, Bunk, um, joins the homicide squads, so almost she just slips in. And and she's there here with a computer next to next to next to Freeman loving seeing the graphics go across the screen she's, she's in an element her Freeman Prez and Bunk together as this kind of weird partnership where she can hang out with Bunk and do that kind of stuff but she can ha- also hang out with Prez and, Prez and Freeman and do that kind of stuff I think she's great but there's one kind of bit which I thought was a bit odd and it's when she goes back into her into her car into her radio car and goes back to the goes back to the docks and happens upon Frank Sabotka and says hey Frank how's it going I'm not going to be here for a while because hey stuff <laughs> stuff's happening uh, so I'll see you later in case you don't see me that's I'll be somewhere else okay bye
1: bye <laughs> <laughs> she drove up to him to make that point yeah exactly <laughs> yeah she's not maybe not the uh, Beady herself is not the best actress in this regard yeah. <laughs> But Amy, Amy uh, Ryan is a Amy great actress. Amy Ryan is a superb character. <laughs> I'm with you, though. I really like BD. I yeah. think she's she's a superb character. And it's interesting how she's... Yeah, she is kind of a chameleon. She slots right into wherever she goes. Yeah. She's a bit like... She's a little bit like the Prez of this season in that...
3: Without she, being as ridiculous. No,
1: obviously. Yeah. Well, she doesn't start by being an idiot. And she's got a different path. Like, she starts clever and becomes more clever. <laughs> yeah. But she's Prez in that she's... She's soaking up all this information and she's showing a natural affinity for this kind of thing. Yeah. Right, that's all for this week. Next week, join us when we're going to be watching Season 2, Episode 8. This one's called Duck and Cover. Because and I, there's a duck in it.
3: Yes, well, I think yeah, the title gave it away there a bit... Um <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> thank you everyone for who contributed to this episode. You guys make the episodes and our show sound amazing. So thank you very much. Um and thank you very much to Sonics who do all the transcribing for us automatically. Uh, if you guys need any transcription for your for your website or for anything, go to Sonics.ai forward slash invite forward slash stripped and you get a hundred free minutes of transcription magic.
1: Did you say auto-magically?
3: I said automagically
1: that's is that their word or did you come up with that uh,
3: I've, I've seen it written somewhere
1: <laughs> oh right okay I well credit to whoever did that because I'm, I'm in that auto magically but we also have to thank uh, the people who make our graphics look so good it's Chris Sutera and Izzy Lawrence and you can check out their work at the links in our show notes
3: yeah uh, thank you to Sam and Martin from the Song by Song podcast for their version of Way Down in the Hole which you can hear right now
1: And thank you for the guy who put their song under our voices right now. His name's Tom Wally. He's our producer. And he's a cool guy.
3: (laughs) T-bone. T-bone. If you guys ever want to get in contact with us, we are at The Wire Stripped on Facebook. We're on Twitter. We're on Instagram. And if you want to send us an email, which we do love getting, uh, we are burner at thewirestripped.com.
1: And another thing we like getting is reviews because we are giant big narcissists and we like hearing nice things about this show that we're making for you so let us know if you're liking the show please leave us a review it uh, helps us out and we massively appreciate it thank you
3: thank you and yeah and do leave us a review and also we're on spotify guys so tell all your friends who are on spotify to listen to us there's no more excuses anymore
1: no stop it with the excuses everyone (laughs) Um, okay we'll see you next week week.
5: bye (laughs) bye